You should have an outline, and I have some extras uh, here. Carlton's got a few in the back there. Um, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started, and uh, let's start out with a word of, of prayer. Chad, will you pray for us this morning? Amen. All right, if you would take uh, your Bible and turn to um, Mark chapter 1 is kind of an introduction verse here. We're looking at Christ in the New Testament, and uh, we looked at Christ in the Old Testament last week, looked at Christ in the New Testament this week, and that might be a little bit of, uh, you think, redundancy because we always seem to assume we're, when we're teaching or preaching in the New Testament, we're teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. But uh, it's interesting, the more you uh, think through the sermons you've heard in your life, how many New Testament sermons rarely or uh, never mention Jesus. Many people teach the New Testament, finish the whole sermon, no mention of Jesus. <laughs> and that may seem strange because we're in the New Covenant, it ought to be pretty obvious there's not a lot of debate that Jesus belongs in the teaching of the New Testament. Nobody debates that. But yet we can do, we, we do often, unfortunately, teach without ever mentioning Jesus, even in the New Testament. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's, it says, John writes, Now after John was arrested, John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. This is how Jesus announced his public ministry. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news. So, last week, dovetailing into what we did last week, Jesus obviously believed the stage had been set for the people to expect that the kingdom of God was coming to the earth. Because he doesn't say, now I know you didn't really expect this, I know this is a shock to you, but I've come and the kingdom of God is here. Now, we'll explain what the kingdom of God is later. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus shows up, walks up to his first crowd, and boldly announces, the kingdom of God has come. No, I don't take that anybody in there was confused or even caught off guard. I think they were expecting that the kingdom of God was coming. And so um, that's just kind of a way of saying, when we look at the way the Bible is divided up and these structures that we can, these superstructures we might call them, foundational structures that we might lay on the grids, that we might lay on the Bible itself, that come from the Bible. The kingdom was the one last week we looked at. We're going to look at it again this week. Covenant was one we looked at last week. We're going to look at it again this week. Jesus announced his ministry by saying the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has come. Okay, it's at hand. All right, so let's look at this uh, New Testament structure through the kingdom of God. What, how do we um, use this as a structure for the New Testament? Well, first of all, we see that the kingdom of God came in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, this morning, for time's sake, we won't look at everything, but I do want to kind of look at some things with you that signal, that point to the fact that the kingdom of God came to the earth with Jesus 
in the person of Jesus. Um, we see the verse there uh, with the beginning of uh, Mark. But then look at what Jesus' ministry is made of. Let's look, up at, look at what his ministry is made up of. Um, as we get ready to do that, hold your place in Mark because we're going to come right back there and look in Luke chapter 4. Because here again, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, goes to, uh, to Nazareth and uh, enters into the synagogue. In Luke 4, verse 16, the Bible reads, And he came to Nazareth, where he, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to, to the captives. And recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now this is just another way of saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Because these symbols, so these uh, acts that were proclaimed in Isaiah that would happen in the future. Jesus says they're happening today. Right here in your hearing, you are seeing the fulfillment of the co coming of the kingdom of God. How do we know that? Well, because he says... He's going to bring good news to the poor. He's going to set the captives free. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to, um, he's going to put at liberty all those who are oppressed. These are the signs of the kingdom of God. The rooting out of evil. The doing away of disease. Now, turn back to Mark and we'll see this kingdom of God lived out in Jesus' life. Some people have said that there has never been, and I believe this is probably the case, there has never been another time in history... When less disease, less oppression, and less, um, less demonic power was in influence in any area of the world outside of the Garden of Eden, the next place that that's true and closest to being true of those things not existing is in the life of Jesus in Palestine. If you think about what Jesus did in Palestine while he was walking the streets and just the, the fact that he healed the, the hundreds that he healed, the thousands that he healed. I mean, we're, we're told that so many people were being brought to him that he was healing people from sun up to sundown on, on several occasions, that he was worn out from working and his work was constantly healing, constantly teaching. If you think about the food program Jesus ran, where he's feeding people by the thousands. If you think about the demons being cast out. I mean, you just think about how Palestine was being transformed under the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now look at Mark and see, we're going to quickly run through and see what Jesus brings when he brings the kingdom of God. Yes. Yeah, and John, at the end of John... In John 21, John proclaims that if everything he did had been written down, that the whole world couldn't contain 
the, the volumes that would be written. So we know that his ministry was replete with good works. Look in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. We're not going to read all these texts. I just want you to look at them with me quickly. Um, here on the Sabbath day, he enters the synagogue. He teaches. There, everyone's astonished by his teaching. So one thing, the kingdom of God in Jesus' life that comes forward is this great authoritative teaching that he does. But he also, look what it says, they brought him a, one with an unclean spirit. And the spirit cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus says, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, though it convulsed the man and made him cry out with a loud voice, it came out of him. And he cast out this unclean spirit. And uh, the people are amazed at what they're seeing. Okay, so we see his powerful teaching and his casting out of demons is exemplary of his bringing the kingdom of God to hand. Then we look at the very next story that Mark records and we see that it's the healing of many. Look what it says in verse 29. And he immediately left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew and with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In other words, when the demons knew he was the Son of God, they knew that he was the Messiah. They knew, we could say, that the kingdom of God had become near. They knew it. They recognized it. The demonic forces knew this is the beginning of a new era. And um, so powerful teaching, casting out demons, healing the sick. And not just any sick, but notice the categories that are given to us in Mark's gospel. He heals leprosy, the most dreaded disease in their day. He overcomes the paralytics problems, paralysis. I mean, we can't even fix paralysis consistently in our own day with the modern medicine. And Jesus simply touched people and paralysis went away. And this is how powerful his ministry is. Um, and we continue through. We look, Jesus grows a man's hand. In other words, the hand, I take this hand to have been drawn, maybe like palsy, uh, probably from some kind of uh, injury or some kind of a severe sickness that it caused a high fever, a stroke of some kind. The man's tendons are drawn in. This is an unusable hand that we see in Mark chapter 3. And Jesus basically regrows that in the matter of touching, simply touching, simply speaking. And he's doing these things um, consistently on the Sabbath day, which is another sign. This is the sign of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we have a right interpretation of the Sabbath day. And I don't want to run into the message this morning because we're going to talk about that. But So you see this. You see this, and, and we could go through Mark. Listen, Mark writes with the grid of the kingdom of God on his mind. It's obvious when you step back and look at how he records the life of Jesus that he's teaching to his audience the fact that God came near 
that Jesus has come. He not only does these things, but look over for the last statement here. Chapter 4, verse 35. He calms the storm. Not only can he heal sickness, not only can he uh, power, teach powerfully, not only can he cast out demons, but he controls the wind and the waves. Okay, so here again we see that in the kingdom of God, uh, Jesus is bringing things to rest, to peace. He's bringing in powerful teaching. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. The kingdom of God came near to us in the life of Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 1, and we see this um, in kind of a narrative, I mean, in a, uh, in a teaching, a didactic passage, John chapter 1, not in the narrative. We looked at the narrative in Mark. Let's look at how John tells us this is happening. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here he tells that the word of God is coming near. This is the same word that created the whole universe. And now it is shining the light of God into the dark world, and the darkness can't overcome it. If you look down at verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, put on flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see here again, the announcement of the coming of Jesus is the, the, as, as, the, as God coming near. And where God is, the kingdom of God is. And so we see that here at the beginning of this, laying in this structure of the kingdom like we did last week over the Old Testament, now we're doing it in the New Testament, we see that the kingdom of God came in the life of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, the kingdom of God is being extended to the ends of the earth by the preaching of the gospel. That's the second thing we need to see in the New Testament, is that not only has the kingdom come near, but now the kingdom is being spread to the ends of the earth through the preaching of the gospel. Matthew chapter 28 gives us uh, that very clearly. <clears throat> Matthew 28 verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here is the great, what we call the great commission, the last commandment Jesus gives to his disciples. And it is, Take what I've taught you to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. And we see in this one command, evangelism, discipleship, church growth, it's all wrapped up into one. And we might say the expansion of the kingdom of God. So it, the kingdom of God came in the life of Jesus, and now it's being expanded through the life of, we might say, the life uh, of the preaching of the gospel. But more specifically, we can say, that, that, that the kingdom is being made visible in the church. 
Look at Matthew chapter 16. Um, it's, it's interesting that um, some would argue that the church was a surprise when it appeared at Pentecost. But it obviously was not a surprise to Jesus. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, prior to Pentecost, how he would build his church. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, verse 13, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of what? The kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here again, Jesus is talking about the church. Here, here again we see that the kingdom of God is being talked about, and now in terms of the church. Because... The church has been entrusted, first the apostles and then the elders and leaders of the church have been entrusted with the keys to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The coming of the kingdom in Jesus' life is expanded through the preaching of the gospel. In the institution, the visible picture is the church. Now, we could go through the history and acts and the epistles. I think it would, it would take up all our time. And I think you know this is the facts. In other words, the, the way the world sees the king, kingdom of God is the way they see the church. The church is the picture of the kingdom of God. That's why it's so vital. That's why it is so vital that the church hold to the doctrine of the scriptures. That's why it's so vital that the church proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it matters how the church disciplines herself. That's why, that's why it's so essential that the church be a multicultural, multi-socioeconomic body. If it's not, then the, the poor say, well, the kingdom is for the rich. Or those of the other nations say it's just for white people. Or it's just for black people. Or it's just for Hispanic people. But when the church looks, that's why it's so important that the church look racially diverse, economically diverse, uh, even, even I would say any form of diversity, men and women, old and young, it should be completely diverse so that if someone came into our meetings, they would say, something that's going on here. This is not this worldly. This is otherworldly. People, I don't see these people together anywhere else much. It's just in the church because that's how the kingdom of God will look. That's how the kingdom of God will look. So, it's important that we as the church look like the kingdom of God. Or the kingdom is being made, we might say, visible in the life of the church. And so we might say the kingdom was inaugurated. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus Christ. That means it started uh, to be made plain and visible at the coming of Jesus Christ. Now it's talked about in the Old Testament. It was exemplified in the nation of Israel. But the kingdom of God... 
comes breaking onto the scene in the life of Jesus Christ. We call that the inauguration, the beginning. Okay? And in the New Testament church period, we see from the coming of Christ through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension into heaven, the pouring out of the Spirit of God on the church. Now the church has become the Christ on the earth. The church has become Christ on the earth. We are what? His body. And he has given us what? His spirit. If I told you somebody had a body and a spirit, you would tell me they were living and active, right? That's the, that's the picture. That's the, actually the fact is that the church is Christ on the earth right now. The world cannot see Jesus Christ, but they see him in his church, or they fail to see him in his church. One of the two. Okay, so you say, well, it doesn't really matter how I live. It doesn't really matter what I do. It doesn't really matter what I say. Oh, it's eternally, it's eternally weighty because the people around you are seeing, are not seeing, one of the two, Christ. Okay? And it's not just on an individual basis, but as a whole, as a people as a whole. And so, here we have uh, the visible kingdom in the life of the church. It was the kingdom inaugurated in the coming of Christ, and now we see that the kingdom will be coronated, or it will be brought into full visibility, into all of its pomp and circumstance, when Jesus comes again. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. So, the, the way that we know the kingdom is broken in, one of the ways is, is through the church. <clears throat> and the church has been uh, assembled, or is being assembled, by the preaching of the gospel through the power of Jesus Christ. Right? And then, we see that this, uh, that this um, 1 Corinthians 15 um, Paul gives us, in verse 3, the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as of, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So he, he says the foundation of the church is the gospel. This message that has been delivered 
by Christ. Okay? Now, look at verse uh, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, or all that are in Christ, they will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all things, all his enemies, under his feet. What we see in this text, and I'm going to keep reading it here, but what we see in this text is, a, is an ordering of the last things. First of all, the first event of the last times, the end times, was the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of the end times. This present age that we live in now is the end times. Everything for the last 2,000 years has been the end times. We are living in the days that the prophets foresaw and longed to be in, but they weren't there. Okay? So, we see, first of all, that the beginning of the end of time is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's the next thing we see? Well, that He then will raise up all who are in Him at the end. All those who belong to Him will be raised up. Okay? And, and this is at the end... When he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, or God the Father, after destroying, he's already destroyed every rule and every authority and every power. When did he do that? While he was reigning. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Okay? So when is that? That in the original language is a present tense active. It's happening from after the resurrection and ascension until the end. The reigning of Christ is from the resurrection, ascension, till he comes again and raises the dead. Why must he reign for that long period of time? Because he's putting his enemies under his feet. He's doing that by the preaching of the gospel, by the expansion to the ends of the earth of the church. He's crushing his enemies. Even now he's doing it. And by God's mercy and grace, we're part of it. We're part of that. That's a great honor. Now, when he comes again, he will deliver the kingdom to his father. He actually just hands it over, what's already been accomplished. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The very end, the last thing will be when he says, no more death. That's the end of death. Okay? That's kind of an ordering of the end. For God, verse 27, has put all things in subjection under his feet. It's already happened. God's already put everything under subjection. It's, it's already been announced by his death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. What's happening now is, it's like, it's like us announcing victory in Iraq. When do we announce victory in Iraq? And this last skirmish. When, does anybody remember? 2007. Okay, 2007, President Bush stood on the carrier in the, uh, in the harbor and announced that it was finished, right? The problem is everybody in Iraq hadn't heard that yet, all right? So 
Just because the president announces that the conflict is over doesn't mean everybody on the field heard that. So now the soldiers for the last five years have been going house to house delivering the message, you're defeated. No more fighting. Give me your guns. It's over. You lost. Right? And they've been setting up a new government and a new order in that country. That's just a small picture of what I think it looks like when Christ was resurrected from the dead, he announced loudly, I'm the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, all of you servants of mine go to the ends of the earth and tell them that I'm the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what the church has been about for over 2,000 years. Telling the lost world, our God is King. His name is Jesus Christ. He rules and reigns. If you don't submit, He will submit you. Now all that's left to happen is Him coming again, or the bringing of the last one into the kingdom. And then He comes again, raises the dead, and bows the knee. Everyone will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? So, we have this picture. If you look over in Revelation 21, we have the ultimate picture, 20 and 21. We have the ultimate picture uh, constructed for us that the coronation of the king and the kingdom is at his second return. Everywhere you see Christ's return spoken of, there's things present. First, a loud voice. Second, trumpets. Third, a throne. Fourth, Jesus uh, there in present, fifth, everyone is gathered around him. Okay. These elements are repeated over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. From the Gospels to Revelation. Every time we see the Jesus at the end, these things are present. What we see often, though, is glimpses from different perspectives. We see perspectives from God's perspective, from the lost man's perspective, from saved man's perspective, from the angel's perspective. In other words, Jesus, God is giving us in the Bible little snapshots of what the last time looks like. And unfortunately, sometimes people take those snapshots, pull them out of context, and make them separate events on a timeline as if they're linear When what the Bible seems to be teaching us, not only in the whole New Testament, but especially in Revelation, is this cyclical pattern of this is how it started, this is how I won the victory, and this is the end. And he does that from the perspective of heaven, from the earth, from hell, from saved man, from lost man, from angel, from demon, from Jesus, to Satan himself. He gives us all those perspectives. This is what it looks like when I come, when the end gets here. Okay? And... In verse 20, we have the last of these snapshots. I mean, chapter 20 of Revelation, we have the last of these snapshots. And in Revelation, the snapshots started in Revelation 6 and 7, in chapter 11 and 12, chapter 13. Uh, it keeps going on down, and they're just, it's like, it's like a revolving. Uh, you've ever seen the collage of pictures of an event? You know, one from the... Uh, one perspective and then from the side and then from this side and from every angle you're seeing the same thing but it's a, it looks a little different I, just because I like sports you know it's like the replay booth the official in the replay booth has the advantage in football of all the angles he can see everything the official on the field can only see his angle that's all he can see 
He has to call it the way he sees it, right? But the coach on the sideline can radio the booth and they can say, oh, wait a minute, they missed it. He fumbled the ball going out of bounds. So they throw a little red beanbag, right? What happens in the replay booth? Have you, you've seen it, haven't you? They zoom in on what they're looking for and they can take that thing and turn it. It's amazing. Looked at the side, the front, from the top, almost like they're looking from the ground. I mean, they can see it from every angle. The end, Jesus coming again, is so important that God gives us all the angles so we can see the whole picture. Revelation 20 is kind of the summation event. John says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, his, the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be re released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. <clears throat> also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on the forehead or on the hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that, that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together, to, gather, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then we see the great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up their dead. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone, anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then the great coronation ends with the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and that word means faded, the same way the Hebrew writer talks about the Jewish epic. It, it faded away, and the sea was no more, and then there was a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, and uh, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we have this last snapshot. I won't read the rest. It goes through chapter 21. Now, what we see happening here, is the end of all things, the coronation of the kingdom, the bringing of God's kingdom fully, completely, absolutely to the earth. And God will reign with His people and His people will reign with Him. Okay?
So this is one way we can look at the New Testament is from this overarching structure of the kingdom. A second way we quickly look at is the covenant structure. Now this one is, again, it's very similar. The new covenant is inaugurated in the life of Jesus Christ. The new covenant is inaugurated in the life of Jesus Christ. When the kingdom, when, when Jesus came and lived and then look in Luke at the end of his life, he makes this abundantly clear in Luke. Um, look at Luke 22. So the, the covenant, new covenant is inaugurated in the life of Jesus Christ. Look what happens here at the Last Supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until the kingdom of God is until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God at that great coronation. That's what he's pointing towards. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's pointing ahead to the second coming. At his, resur- at his coming uh, of that second time. We see it again. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the new covenant is inaugurated in the life of Jesus. It's begun in the life of Jesus. It takes on brand new life, bigger than life status, in the church. In the church. Look at Acts chapter chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 Peter teaches uh, at Pentecost that what had been prophesied in the book of Joel, which was the end to happen in the last days when the, when the kingdom was being uh, uh, brought to the earth, in a sense, Joel proclaims that they will be uh, prophesying, that the Spirit of God will fall on both men and women and that they will all prophesy, see visions, dream dreams from the poorest to the richest they'll all have the same um, the same uh, utterance from the spirit now if you look at verse 22 it says that after quoting that that the great and terrible day of the Lord has come look what he says now some had wrongly understood this to be the very end that end that we read about in Revelation 21 they had wrongly understood it that way Peter corrects their thinking Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs, like Joel said would happen, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And by the way, the whole world fell dark, and it looked as if uh, the, the world was coming to an end when Jesus was crucified. Great earthquake and, and the lights went out. 
God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So then he goes through and describes the resurrection. And in the end, what he says is, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made Christ both Lord, or Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the, the estimate of the apostles is that the kingdom, the spirit of Christ poured out on the people is the sign of the kingdom of God come to the earth or the new covenant being spread out into the life of the church through the spirit. And Jesus is the one who pours that on his church, we're told. So, the covenant is inaugurated in Jesus' life. It's carried out in the presence of the church, the presence of the church. And finally, at his second coming, Christ will make all things new in the new covenant. Revelation 22 shows us the picture of this newness that Jesus will restore. Okay. So these two superstructures can be laid over the New Testament, kingdom and covenant, just like they were in the Old Testament, kingdom and covenant. And we can see the connections from Old to New Testament, from New Testament gospels, epistles, and then uh, the apocalyptic scripture. All right. But let's think about, for just a minute as we get ready to prepare to end here, the proper interpretation of the New Testament through a Christocentric method. First of all, we need to study the specific text being taught. You need to study, if you're, if you're teaching in Matthew 11, you need to study Matthew 11, just like last week. Then, look at how it relates with the immediate context, the immediate verses and chapters around it. Then, spread that hoop of interpretation out to gather in the whole uh, book, and the whole section. And then, the context of the rest of canon we need to look at the rest of the canon. Interpret it all through the rest of the canon. And then finally, the text we're studying needs to be laid into the redemptive historical text. The, to look and see where are we on the grid of redemptive history. And how does my text play into that uh, structure. So, um, And finally, use those same legitimate paths we looked at last week. The seven legitimate ways of seeing Jesus in the scripture in the Old Testament... You see him in the New Testament. Because you can now reverse those. You see Jesus, um, you see Jesus, and we're going to do it this morning from the type to the anatype and the Sabbath to Jesus. But you can do it reverse too. If you're teaching uh, Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus uh, is being uh, accused of breaking the Sabbath, you can take him and say, he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, which means he's the greater than the Sabbath. He's in that same text. He says, I'm greater than the temple. And you can take that and then work backwards in redemptive history to say, why is he saying he's greater than the Sabbath? What's so significant about that? Then you go backwards and say, well, they had a day of rest. They had a day of rest. One in seven principle was established in Exodus, established in Deuteronomy. And so he's saying he's greater than one day of rest. He's saying he is rest. And without him, there is no rest. And so you can do the same uh, work that you did with the Old Testament here in the New Testament. Before we open up for any statements, questions, those kind of things, let's look at that last point. 
the Christocentric method for students to teach Christ in the New Testament. So if you're going to teach Christ from the New Testament, how do we teach Christ from the Gospels and from the history literature of the New Testament? Well, I mentioned it might be difficult at times because we come to some texts, it's very easy, and other texts, there's not, there's not this great ease. If you look at, uh, I'm thinking of an example here. Let's look at uh, the Gospels. Um, let's, let's just look at uh, the uh, Luke chapter uh, 6. Luke chapter 6. In verse 27. Luke, Luke 6 verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes your cloak, do not with, withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. How would we teach that text? Uh, what's a way that we could teach that text and not mention Christ? <laughs> well, we, but think with me. Think with me. Because my child goes, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, very practical. Sure. Because my, my child goes to public school, all three of my oldest do. You know, they all sing the Golden Rule song. Every one of them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They sing a song about it. But there is no mention of Jesus Christ about that. Right? It's become just a practical rule to live by. Treat people nice, and people will be nice to you. That's the way the world rephrases it. Notice that's not what Jesus says. But that, that's what they rephrase it. If you're nice to others, they'll be nice to you. Right? Jesus never promised that, by the way. He said, just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He doesn't say, they'll be nice back. <laughs> okay? You know, the turning the other cheek thing. You know, we've got all kinds of teaching going on from the pulpit, from Sunday school classes. We're teaching kids uh, to be uh, pacifists, not fighting, no violence. And we use this teaching right here. You'll hear lost people in the public schools using this. They don't know that's what they're using, but that, that's exactly how they teach it. And the pulpit's the same way a lot of times. Sure. Yeah. There's never a time for defense or those kind of things. Yeah, they'll misuse it. So it can happen in the Gospels. It happens all the time in the, in the epistles. Let's look at the epistles. Ephesians chapter 4 is a good one that came to mind as I was thinking about this. Ephesians 
Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with the all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Hey, even in this text where Christ is mentioned at the end, you can see how someone could teach this and never root it into Christ himself. Teach it as if, if you'll work really hard and be a really good Christian, you can do this. And if you're not doing this, then you're not a really good Christian. But if you are doing it, then you are a good Christian. You see how it works? And so that becomes the, the whole ethic of the teaching is about doism, legalism. They turn it into legalism. That's not at all what Paul is teaching. Because if we look at the context that surrounds it, look just back up in chapter 4. Okay, so we've studied our text, and now we're following our rules of interpretation. Look at the beginning of chapter 4. If you look at 4 verse 6, uh, excuse me, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended to high, he led the hosts of captives and gave gifts to men. Okay, verse 10, uh, excuse me, 11, and he gave to the, he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up in the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways carried about by every wind of doctrine. Okay, so... Rather, speaking the truth in love, verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and equipped when each part is uh, working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Look at the very next word. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord. So everything in the ethical command section, every, what we call ethical commands, everything from verse 17 to the end of the chapter fits into the, the previous verses, which are all about what? The fact that without Christ and being built up into Christ, you can't do all these things. But if you cut this text away and just teach it line by line and get down on the particulars, and lose sight of the overall context, you can turn this into try harder, work more, keep, keep striving. You'll get there one day. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right? Barry. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly, and we, we've dealt with it, in, and it's well-intended, too, sometimes. It's not, it's not, don't, don't think everybody who misses Christ in these types of passages is doing it on purpose. For a lot of them, it's just, like you said, it just has happened over time, and they, they, just, they would never do it intentionally. Your typical uh, Sunday school class, your typical Sunday school class, and I would say even the material in your Sunday school quarterly, Often did it. And the writer of that material did not intend to cut you away from Christ and try to make you work. Well, maybe he did. I shouldn't. Maybe, maybe they did. But I wouldn't think his intent was to hide Christ. But that's what he did by focusing in on, uh, you know, you instead of on Christ. And the fact that this is only possible in Christ. Yeah. And it happens in our parenting. I, I, I could tell myself, you know, uh, I remember when Hannah Grace was probably five or six years old and she had gotten in trouble four or five times. I know that's hard for y'all to believe, but four or five times in a very short window of time, you know, three or four hours. It was on a Saturday and I was, I was on her, you know, and finally, and I'm telling you, I'm saying you, you've got to obey. And she and finally, she said, she looked up, tears flowing down her face. I can't obey, Daddy. I need Jesus. You know, you do. <laughs> we all do. But we do it in our parenting, this, this uh, harping on the children to do what they're really not able to do. So have, we have to teach it from the standpoint of this is why we all need Jesus. I, you know, I have to do that all the time. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In Paul's writings, if you get in the last half of the book, a letter, a lot of times you get caught up in, you can, if you cut that away, you can get caught up in legalism or doisms. But it just helps if you just read the whole letter. They're not very long. Just go back and read the whole letter, and all of a sudden you realize that's set in the context of this deep theology about who God is and how He has saved you and how He has empowered you. To live this way. Okay? So, again, it's that context piece. You study particularly the passage you're teaching. And then, don't stop there. Keep backing out. So that until you get the full range. And the full range includes in this passage, Old Testament passages, which Paul's now quoting. Bringing in. So we go back and look at their context. Okay? It's something we all struggle with as humans or whatever. Is it being a balance? When you Yeah. Getting in all of life, whether it be parenting or whatever, trying to understand the balance of, yes, you're going to obey, but it's going to be all about love. And <laughs> it's all about the balance. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And so as we're teaching these things, we had to keep that in mind. And then also in the apocalyptic, and we're, we're running low on time, but in, in, this, in, in, in the apocalyptic, that's not just uh, in the book of Revelation. That's, there's pieces of Hebrews. There, a lot of the epistles have verses and pieces that would be apocalyptic or about the, the end of time. Anywhere, anytime we're there, let's don't lose sight. You know, how many people have sat through? I know there was one particular man in, in a church I was previously in that he taught through Revelation at least 12 times. I'm serious. He taught a Sunday school class, and, man, they go back to it. They, they teach a little something else, and then they, they, he'd choose, and they go right back into Revelation. And they just taught that thing and taught that thing and taught that. But if you went in those classes, you'd go weeks at a time talking about how computer chips were going to end up in people's foreheads or their hands and how the locusts were helicopters coming in. and I mean, all this science fiction stuff being laid into the Bible and in and, and weeks, I mean, weeks would go on, no Jesus. And teaching, teaching the book of Revelation ought to center around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, if we're going to the book of Revelation to find out the, the decoder uh, message in the bo box of Rice Krispies, we missed it, all right? That's not, it wasn't that hard. Remember, the letter was written to churches in John's day that were filled with people who had very little to no education. It wasn't hard for them. They read it, and he expected them to understand it. Okay, so when we get too complicated, uh, we probably have... Have made a mistake. We need to back up and look at it again. Remember, those shepherds were reading this. They got it. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, we've all seen that. The, the, the doomsday predictors that have you know, had followings that sold all their goods and went and lived on mountains and they came and went, you know. And, they, and then they're crushed. They're crushed. Their faith is crushed. So keeping this Christ-centered lens over all that we do. So what's a good question to ask when we're finished with our study? There's two good questions to always ask. Why does this matter? What I'm about to tell these people, why does it matter? And secondly, where is Christ? Looking at your finished work, when you're getting ready to teach a lesson, and you get to the end, you say, okay, did I teach them anything about Jesus? Did I, did I keep this in the context of Christ-centeredness? If not, then probably I need to back up and look at it again with fresh eyes.